You can remain standing for the reading of God's word. This is from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. And it's also printed in your bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it never goes out and returns to you empty. It always accomplishes uh, your purposes. And we pray that it would be so this morning, uh, through your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Well, in 2009, I was just out of college. I was living in a little town in East Tennessee called Pigeon Forge. If you are not familiar with the Pigeon Forge Gatlinburg area, it is the Branson of the East. And so uh, it's the home of Dollywood Theme Park, uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, uh, and outlet malls and go-kart tracks and putt-putt courses as far as the eye can see. It's the type of place where you get in a lot of fender benders if you live there because people are driving down the parkway there and then they look off to their right and there is a life-size replica of the Titanic and they're looking at that and not the road. Um, now, Pigeon Forge, despite being a pretty small town, or uh, despite being a tourist trap, is actually a pretty small town. And so it was a big deal in 2009 uh, when we found out that George W. Bush was coming to the convention center in town. Now, we are a, a little bit removed from W.'s presidency now, but this was right after he left office. And so it felt like the president was coming to town. But not only that, it turns out that he was flying into this little private airstrip that was right uh, behind the church that I was working at. In other words, the president was going to be driving through my parking lot right past my office. So somehow we, uh, meaning my co-workers at the church and myself, uh, found out that this was happening. And so we did what red-blooded Americans do when you find out the president is, is in town. We went outside to see him. And so we're standing out there in the parking lot, and we're kind of shivering. Uh, it's cold outside. We're waiting and waiting. And finally, up behind us, the airstrip, the plane comes in. Uh, and then it sort of taxis. There's, there's sort of a hangar there, and it's, it's lost from view. And there's a pause. We wait maybe 15 minutes and we're standing there, and all of a sudden, these five or so blacked-out Suburbans 
with the black suit, bad looking dudes with the, the earpieces. They come tearing down the hill uh, from the hangar and, and blasting through the parking lot, probably from, from me to you. It was just like a movie. And I couldn't see him. I didn't know which one of these he was in. He's obviously behind some tinted bulletproof glass. But it didn't really matter because I knew that there was the president. And all this happened very quickly, and they pulled out of the parking lot. And I looked down, and I realized that I was waving. And it's, it's like my arm wasn't even really attached to my brain. But it turns out when you get that close to the leader of the free world, you have to do something. You have to acknowledge him. Uh, it's just in you. Peter is in a little bit of the same situation in this passage. Of course, the feeling is multiplied because uh, the president is just a man, but Peter is before God himself. And Jesus has brought him and, and James and John as well up the mountain. And the three of them fall asleep while Jesus prays. Uh, the disciples often had trouble falling asleep when they were supposed to be uh, attending to Jesus. But something happens while Jesus prays. It says his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Now, the New Testament doesn't really read like a modern novel, right? Uh, it doesn't use a lot of descriptive language. And so if it says dazzling white, then what it really means is like a white-hot diamond surface-of-the-sun type glare that is coming out of Jesus. Not on him as if God had put a sort of spotlight on him. Uh, it's coming out, more like his inner beauty and goodness and holiness. In other words, his glory is shining, bursting out of him. And not only that, but Moses and Elijah, two of the most important Old Testament characters representing the law and the prophets, uh, are with him in glory. And they are talking about his death on the cross. In other words... Peter falls asleep, and when he wakes up, he is witnessing this incredible sort of heavenly board meeting. Uh, it's, it's sort of the spiritual version of Mount Rushmore coming to life. And as Peter tries to shake the sleep off of him, he's hearing talk about Jesus' departure. The word there is actually his exodus. That should ring some bells for us, right? Uh, that he was about to accomplish. Now, that is a funny way to say it, that he is about to accomplish now, we don't normally think of death as an accomplishment. But, of course, for Jesus, it was. Because as they talk about the cross, they're actually plotting the destruction of Satan. The once and for all conquering of evil, the crushing of the serpent's head that is promised in Genesis 3.15. Or as John Owen put it, the death of death in the death of Christ. In other words, it is a conspiracy against the powers of darkness, a conspiracy of the, ve of, the, of the best kind to rid the world of sin and evil and death. Now, what would you do in that situation? Uh, maybe you would wave, slack-jawed, like I did. Uh, this is an unprecedented moment in the history of the world. It is a, a sort of otherworldly prologue to the new heavens in the new earth as if God has just sort of cracked open the door for a second. And James and John are apparently speechless, and Peter 
says, Peter always has something to say, right? Uh, that uh, he says in verse 33, this is essentially, this is great. Let's put up some tents. Now, that's a strange uh, thing to say, but there are some very important tents in the Bible, of course. This may have been a reference to Old Testament uh, tabernacle or the Feast of Booths or maybe even Moses' own tent of meeting. In Mark's account of this, it just says he didn't know what to say because he was terrified. They were all terrified, and we would be too. So we can cut Peter some slack for wanting to put up like the pop-up canopy. Uh, We all would have done something strange in this situation. But Peter really didn't need to say anything, did he? Because it turns out something far more important is happening here, that God himself is about to say something. And so he ignores the, the tent idea. Thanks, but no thanks, Peter. And this cloud comes over. And there are important clouds in the Old Testament as well, specifically God's Shekinah glory cloud that led the Israelites through the desert. And a voice comes booming out of the cloud, the Father's own voice saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then it's all gone. Jesus is just standing there. It's all back to normal. So what does all this mean? Well, obviously, we can't really recreate the power of this experience, right? Uh, this is a once-in-the-history-of-the-world event. This is the epitome of a sort of you-had-to-be-there type thing. But I do think there are a couple things that we can take away from this. First, we should believe that this has happened, that it did happen. There are many things in the Bible that are hard to understand, right? There are miracles, suspensions of reality and of the natural order, things that we have never seen and will never see in our lifetimes, and that is what is happening here. And so we may be tempted to ask the question, is this believable? And I don't think that is a bad question, but I think it helps to be a little more specific. I think a better question is to ask, Is this believable in the context of the Bible? In other words, if you sort of strip away the redemptive history, uh, if you look at this episode or the virgin birth or the resurrection or the ascension uh, or any of these big moments, if you sort of look at those things in a vacuum, then they are very difficult to reconcile with reality, right? On the other hand... If you look at them in the flow of the big story of the Bible, then they make complete sense. The sort of visual stunningness of Christ's appearance, the conversation with Moses and Elijah, the the things with the tents and the clouds, the voice of the Father coming down to validate the Son, all of these things, I think, are things that we can expect. They are a continuation, an unfurling of a conversation that began uh, long ago in the Old Testament that go all the way back to the day that sin entered the world and death through sin. Because really we don't need any of this stuff if sin has not wrecked our world and ourselves and put us at odds with God himself, with our creator. Stories have tension, right? Um, or they are not stories. We don't tell stories about uh, simple things where nothing goes wrong. Uh, and so the redemptive story of Christ Jesus coming to earth to save his people is the ultimate story, I think, because sin is the ultimate problem. 
all of our other problems, all of our other tension flows out of and really pales in comparison to our broken relationship with God. This idea that we are creatures uh, at enmity with our creator. But God, there are, there are a lot of but gods in the Bible, uh, taking the initiative himself put a plan in motion to set everything right. Right. He call, uh, called for the offspring of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent. And this is completely consistent with that plan. This is what we would expect. So the question is not, does this fit with your own experience? Is this believable in the sort of context that you live in right now? The question is, does this fit with who God says he is and what he says he's doing? And the answer is yes. The second thing is this. Uh, this is one of two places in the Gospels where the voice of uh, the Father comes down and speaks over Jesus in this way. The other is at his baptism. And so I think we need to be very careful and, and look closely at what the Father is saying right here. So three things. First, he says, this is my son. In other words, Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of the Most High, the second member of the Trinity. Second, he says, my chosen one. This is Isaiah 42 language, right? Uh, when God says, behold, my servant, my chosen one who will bring justice to the nations. In other words, God is saying, this is the one who I have chosen to carry out this great salvation. This is the seed of the woman long awaited. Third, he says, listen to him. Listen to him. And this is the one I want to explore for a few minutes. There are a lot of people in this room, so I'm sure uh, there are lots of different reactions when you hear listen. Uh, for myself, and maybe you're like me, and maybe you grew up with a relative or a parent. For me, it is my mother. And when she looks at me and says, now listen, I know beyond doubt that she is about to tell me something that she read in the newspaper or heard on TV that she thinks is just eminently important to my safety. Now listen, they found E. coli at Chipotle. Uh, I have kids now, so a lot of them revolve around parenting, right? My two-year-old son specifically. Uh, now listen, don't let him play with those seashells because if he eats one, it could get lodged in his esophagus. She told me that a couple weeks ago when my parents were visiting. Uh, so maybe you're like that. Maybe you have a spouse or a friend who is so sort of overcautious that uh, you've learned to ignore it when someone says, listen. But what about this? We just had Halloween uh, last week, right? So if you and I were in a scary movie together, maybe we're walking through uh, a haunted house, it's some sort of high-tension scene, and I stopped you and said, listen, it would be totally quiet, right? Your ears would be straining to catch any hint of sound because your life is on the line in that situation, right? And that's really what, more so what is happening here. Uh, we live in a, a broken world, a, a world that has fallen, a place that is a lot more like a haunted house than we realize. And when God says, listen, 
your life really is on the line because sin has put us in a position to be desperately in need of rescuing. And so God says, listen. But you might notice that God says, listen, but Jesus isn't actually saying anything in this passage. Uh, But he did say something right before this. He said something profound. It was so profound, in fact, that this whole passage starts with uh, eight days after these sayings. If you read something like that, you should probably look and see what the sayings are. So what was it? Well, here's what he said right before this. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You have probably heard this before. But think about this. Jesus is telling his disciples, he's saying, first, deny, uh, he's saying for them to deny themselves, to forget themselves, to forget their own desires and affections and sort of vision of the good life. And second, instead, to pick up their cross, to pick up this sort of instrument of death and torture. That is very counterintuitive, right? But somehow... By following Jesus in his suffering, by losing your life, you save it. And Jesus even says, if you don't want to do that, uh, if you don't want that, then okay, you can actually be very successful. Uh, In fact, you can gain the whole world. You can gain money and fame and sex and power. You can treasure those things in your heart if you want. But in the end, you will forfeit yourself. You'll lose yourself. Why? Because none of those things address or take care of or speak to the ultimate problem of sin. In fact, they only make it worse. They only exacerbate it. Jesus knows how counterintuitive it is to give up what you want and to choose to suffer. And, and so here in this moment, he, he shows this little glimpse of the end game, right, of the the prize. Because when Jesus gives this sneak peek into eternity, when glory is shining out of his face and his body, white hot, he's saying, this is what's on the other side for those who follow me, for those who suffer with me. And then the Father's voice comes down out of heaven like this stamp of approval, saying, yes, what he's saying is true. That is the reward. Now listen to him. It's sort of like when I saw uh, W and my hand was waving, right? Uh, This is information that demands a response. Like you have to acknowledge him. You have to respond. But you don't want to just wave, right? You don't just want to be, hey, gotcha, I, I hear you. When God says, listen, he's, he's not just saying, well, sort of process my words and then kind of weigh them and decide maybe what's best. How many people do we know like that? You say, well, I want to take some of what's good over here in Christianity. I want to take some of what's good over here and everything else, and I'm just going to kind of put it together. The problem with that is that it makes you the arbiter of what is best for your life. 
And that's not what's happening here. When God says, listen, he's saying, listen and obey. That's what we tell my two-year-old. We say, listen and obey. It does no good uh, to just sort of allow the words into you without response. So what does it look like to listen and obey? Well, it looks like dying to your sin, what we call repentance. And it looks like taking up your cross and following Jesus, what we call faith. Repentance and faith are always two sides of the same coin. It's turning away from your sin on the one hand. It's turning toward Jesus on the other. And it is very painful. Very painful. In fact, if following Jesus is not painful for you, then you should probably reevaluate. Because not only are there external stressors to following Jesus, social stressors, uh, all the way to financial stressors, uh, there are internal stressors as well. There are things inside of you. Because really, following Jesus is a heart transplant, right? Uh, because our own, our own hearts are so broken, because they're corrupted in sin, that's why we want the money and the fame and the sex and the power. And those are just a few of the big ones, right? The sort of flashing neon sins. Uh, we want those things more than Jesus himself, and it is why we put those things on the throne of our lives, or put ourselves on the throne of our own lives as we embody and run after those things. But if you give up those things in repentance, if by God's grace you sort of uh, do that transplant, you rip those things out of you, allow him to rip those things out of you, and Jesus is telling you it is a painful process, you put him on the throne of your life, then you won't just live. You will live life to the full. And you'll spend eternity basking in the glow of the glory of God that we get just a little peek at in this passage. When I lived in East Tennessee, uh, I was very close to Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg area. That's right where Smoky Mountain National Park is. And so my friends and I one day went to Smoky Mountain National Park uh, to visit a very uh, beautiful natural wonder called the Toilet Bowl. And the reason it was called the Toilet Bowl is because it's this big uh, stream, and in the middle of the stream there's a big flat rock, and in the middle of the flat rock is a big hole. And then the water sort of swirls around and goes down actually through a sort of tunnel uh, underwater there and then uh, comes out sort of down a little ways. And so uh, the deal with the toilet bowl was that if you ducked down into it, then you would be sort of pushed or sucked through this underwater tunnel and then you would pop out the other side. And it was every bit as terrifying as it sounds. <laughs> Because I did it. Uh, you take, uh, this is peer pressure when you're, you're 20 or so, you take a big breath and you duck down and everything goes black and you get taken by the water. You are not swimming. You have no real control over what's happening. Uh, just the water is sort of carrying you and it's pitch black and you don't know what's up or what's down. I remember kind of bouncing uh, off the walls down there. 
And then you see at the end of it, a, a literal, a light at the end of the tunnel. And then you pop up and you're, and you're, oh, you're breathing. You're trying, to, uh, you're trying to calm down after that experience. And that is almost exactly what real repentance and faith feels like. It is diving down instead of running away into your sinful heart, into uh, that feeling of the weight and the seriousness of sin before God. And it is very dark and it feels like you're dying. But in Christ, because of what Jesus did on the cross, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. You are going to pop up on the other side into a new life. It might not feel like it at first. It might not feel like it uh, often in this world where we remain uh, until the day that Jesus returns. But he has promised us that the light is there. That there is glory on the other end if we listen and obey in repentance. If we take up our cross... And if we follow Jesus, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are so kind to us, that you are good and that you only do good. And we pray that uh, you would teach us these things, that you would teach us repentance and faith in you to take up our cross and follow you daily and put you on the throne instead of the things that we are so uh, interested in worshiping. We pray that you would do this uh, through your son in his name. Amen.